Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. This book is right before 2 Samuel. After Judges and Ruth. After the death of Joshua, who had led Israel into the promised land, conquering most of the land and dividing it up according to the 12 tribes, there began a 330-year period with the people being led by judges. Even though the people had promised to keep the covenant with the Lord, their condition is best described by the last verse in the book of Judges, which reads, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people of Israel turned from the Lord and worshipped other gods. A recurring pattern is clearly seen all through the 330-year period of the Judges. First, the people would forget God and rebel in all sorts of idolatrous ways. Then, they experienced oppression as God used their pagan neighbors to war against them. Then the people would get the message and finally repent. Then God would raise up a judge to deliver them from that bondage. And then it's back to number one. The people would drift back into forgetting God and back to sin and rebellion. And that cycle occurred 12 specific times, although um, some of those judges overlapped one another and maybe were in different places in Israel. How long has America been here? Not 330 years. This is a long period of time for God's people to be rebelling against him on a regular basis. Samuel is raised up by God to be the last of these judges and usher Israel in to a new regime of kings. As chapter 4 begins, all Israel, we read, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And so, now bolstered by having a genuine prophet, of the Lord, bringing God's word to them again, they did something incredibly foolish. They decided to engage their ever-present, it seems, enemy, the Philistines, without going to God about it first. Last week we saw in the first half of chapter 4, down through verse 11, the disastrous results of taking matters into their own hands. In this campaign, they were defeated in two battles, losing 4,000 men in the first and 30,000 men in the second. This was compounded even more because after the first defeat the elders decided to bring into the next battle what they thought would be the guarantee of victory, the Ark of the Covenant. But 
as we just noted in the second battle, 30,000 men die. But even more important, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And among the 30,000 killed, the high priest Eli's two wicked sons, also priests, died. Two prophets, the last one, Samuel himself, had prophesied these two deaths. But that wasn't all of the prophecy. And now in the second half of chapter 4, we see a little more of how that word of the Lord was being fulfilled. What happened when news of this disastrous defeat reached Shiloh, where the tabernacle was? If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting at verse 12 and going through the end of the chapter in verse 22. 1 Samuel 4, 12 through 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what's this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death... The women attended her, attending her said to her, Do you not be afraid, for you've borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, 
The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Cheery message. Well, let's first look at the end of Eli. Verses 12 through 18. This is pretty straightforward. The news of the slaughter got back to Shiloh fairly quickly as the Israelite man ran, and if you remember from last week, over 22 miles, another marathon runner, but unlike the famous Greek one, he didn't drop over dead. 22 miles at least. In the hill country. Eli is obviously very agitated and worried. And most probably expecting the worst as we see him, verse 13, sitting on his seat by the road, watching. That's figurative because he was blind. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. Trembled means trembling with fear. And why was he trembling with fear as he waited for the news? Well, just think about what he'd already heard. God had already told him twice through a prophet that was not named and then through Samuel himself this. To Chapter 2, verse 33, And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And where were they? Remember when the Ark of Covenant was brought to Ebenezer where this battle was on the west side of Israel from the east side of Israel where Shiloh was. We read there that Hophni and Phinehas were with the Ark. Well, Eli also knew something else. He had to be aware, since he was the high priest, that the ark was only to go where God commanded it to go. And in this situation, the people had rushed into battle on their own, commanding God more or less to bring his power to assure their victory. Well, this man that came from the battle ran on by Eli and told the news first to those in the city, and that great cry of defeat and woe and anguish rang out. And obviously he heard it. So Eli, right there, he's blind, he's left in his agony, he knows something happened, he may have even heard the guy run by, but he asked what that outcry was. And finally, the man hurried and came and told Eli, verse 14. 
At this point, we find out exactly how old Eli is, 98, and are reminded that he cannot see. And what was the man's report in verse 16 and 17? And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Now, which part of this horrible news was actually Eli's death blow? Well, the author makes this really clear. We read in verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, that's when Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel 40 years. You see, Eli was not prepared for this part of the news. We must consider here that while Eli was resolved, which we looked at last week, to accept his own fall from priestly office, and probably even the death of his sons, because he, he knew how much they deserved God's judgment. But what else happened here? God's judgment on his own sins, on Eli's own neglect of his responsibility in office, resulted in the ark's capture, and it was too much to bear for him. Do you see that thought process? This isn't false guilt. He knew that the buck more or less stopped with him. God's judgment on his own sins resulted in the ark's capture. The whole nation had been put in peril because of the leadership's sins. 34,000 lives and mayhem all over the hill country of Israel. The ark, the very symbol of God's Real presence was captured and gone. The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel, is what we read. Now that brings us to the second part of this section, which deals with the death of Phineas's wife. This passage also clearly shows what the real tragedy was here. And we have several to pick from. But the real tragedy is the loss of the ark. Even hearing this news about the ark and her father-in-law and her husband as she was giving birth, the wife of the wicked Phineas is mainly broken and concerned about the ark's capture, and this is confirmed twice 
in her dying words. In the middle of all this horrid sin and the vacuum of ungodliness that we've seen in Israel, this, you know, evidently godly woman who was married to one of the most wicked men in the whole nation. I mean, just let that sink in for a second here. She saw as much more significant than her loss the loss of the presence of God. Nothing compared to this loss. The glory has departed from Israel. And before she died, this is confirmed even more because she named her newborn son Ichabod, which literally means where is the glory or just simply no glory. And this son as we see then, was given a name that reflected Israel's rebellious condition at this time. Well, she was right and wrong in some ways. She was right in that the ark was gone, and God's chastisement was obviously heavy on these people, all of them. But she was wrong in that the glory of the Lord was not truly, completely departed. Simply because God's great promises to true Israel could never be broken. Exodus 6, 7, God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Um, Hebrews 13, 5, which is a quote of Joshua 1, 5. There in Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's attributed to Christ. Romans 8.39, Paul writes, Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus in John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But something is drastically amiss. God is working to obviously do a little more than get their attention. How should we think when we're faced with times in which we feel that God's presence or power has completely disappeared? What if after all of our prayers and concern, we actually do suffer an attack that takes us down. That doesn't have to be the situation. This could be any kind of situation in which in our own lives it just seems like, where is God? I'm alone. And Paul addresses this in a very interesting passage that many people don't understand, and that's in Romans 10, verses 6 through 8. But he says this, and you'll recognize this verse. He's talking about the righteousness that we need and that we have by faith in Christ. 
that will allow us to stand before God. He says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. You ever wondered, what in the world is he talking about there? And how does that apply? What he's getting at here is that our confidence in the Lord's gracious presence does not require some manifestation from heaven or some reversal from the realm of death. The righteousness based on faith says, don't say, don't say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down, show me, give me a sign, work in a powerful way so I'll have no doubts that this is you? See that? And then he gives the opposite example. Don't go down to the abyss and demand that sign either. What does he say in the next verse? Verse 8. Instead, we see here in verse 8, which is a quote of Deuteronomy 30, 14. The word is near you. It's a fact. Whether we feel like it is or not. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words... God is present by his what? His word. He is as near to us as the word of God that we speak by our mouths and believe in our hearts or sing to him or pray or remember And this should thrill us, and we should have a collective sigh. Oh. Because there's many times when our feelings betray us, and the circumstances are so overwhelming and bear so much of a burden that it is dark. It feels dark. God is present by his word. Now please don't misunderstand. Because for the disobedient and idolatrous people of Israel. God had determined to judge and replace the wicked leadership of Eli and his sons. That was his word. The prophecy that came. Now. We think, oh, he's not being gracious. Until we realize that this had been going on forever. Specifically 330 years. As soon as he worked and delivered them through a judge, it didn't take any time at all for them to go back in rebellion and doing what they wanted to do 
their way. Sounds like us. That's how our hearts work. But he had determined that the wicked leadership of Eli and his sons and his whole house was over. And he decided to act on it so that everyone in Israel would know. In other words, he was literally getting rid of them. God let Eli know this and even used his newly appointed prophet Samuel, if you'll remember, very young Samuel, to communicate this to him. And that's when we found out that Eli knew and he resigned himself to it. So what we're seeing here is as, and that's an important word, as God does what he said he would do here, all the rest of the people of Israel are affected. Now we're going to see later that David, King David later on has to face a very similar issue because of something he did and he had three choices and all of them involved horrid consequences. Eli just fell over and broke his neck. It overwhelmed him so much. He couldn't bear this burden. Now, this is a people in covenant with God, and we've got to keep that in mind because there were blessings and curses in the covenant with them based on their obedience. God's not doing something different than what he said he would do. And sin has horrid consequences. And we see here the immediate result for the people as a whole, who after this were less than the whole they were before. Military defeat and over 34,000 casualties. But you notice it was talking about the amongst the people as well, and they were fleeing, which means this was really, really bad. But the main thing, the main thing beyond all that was something else. God's chastisement in his apparent departure. Think about it. They knew the prophecy. They knew they had been rebelling. They knew that Samuel had just been raised up to be God's prophet. But they hadn't asked God or asked Samuel about this battle. Again, they just went off and did what they thought they should do. That was right. They even had a trick. They had something that they thought God would never let happen. The ark be captured. And as we mentioned before, this is a recurring problem. The people of Jerusalem thought so exactly the same way later. And they were wiped out. And it wasn't because God was weak. It was simply because God 
can't be defined to be in dislocation, and he's not to be used as a good luck charm. And he was willing to be talked bad about by enemies. Oh, look how weak this God is because his people, we just wiped him out. In order to get his people's attention again in serving him and worried about God's glory and not their own. These are very, very serious lessons, aren't they? The people as a whole were rebellious, idolatrous, disobedient. See if this sounds familiar. So what we see here, we could say that God left them to themselves for a while. He gave them exactly what they wanted to show them that, yes, they did need him. And they could do anything without him. And if they did, it wouldn't last any time at all anyway. And this is what all of mankind is going to learn or have to face in the day of judgment. Is this something that would just happen in Old Testament times, this apparent departure of God? Now, this ought to shake us up. You ever read Revelation 2 and 3? Jesus wrote some letters to the seven churches in the church age, which applies to us. And there the threat is what? In these letters to the seven churches, Jesus threatens to remove the lampstands of wayward churches, which the lampstand is is defined there before all this starts as the place of the church. Churches will die and no one will even know what they are. And I've never been there, but in Europe, most of Europe, what are the churches, for instance, of the Protestant Reformation and the times when people did fear the Lord? There are museums and nightclubs and worse. Just these structures. Could you say that God was absent? Yes, that's the point. It's a warning for us to not forget what we are doing here. It's not for our own glory. It's not to puff us up. It's not for social reasons. It's not for economic reasons. It's not for any other reason beside that we have been chosen by the Lord to be his. For no reason in and of ourselves, we belong to him. And he wants us to get together regularly, get to know each other, get to know him. And in that context, We bring glory and honor to him. And he knows that we need to gather regularly. Because why? Well, I think we have an example here. We are prone to wander. 
And whether you want to admit it or not, you need other Christians who worship the true God. I need you to encourage me to worship the Lord God. Nobody, nobody is exempt. Because we just so quickly go off and do what we think is cool. Or what we think we need to do. So let me ask you a question. It should be obvious. Was the glory of the presence of God apparently gone because the ark was captured? See, that sounds like Phineas's widow a little bit there. I mean, she was, all, she was getting there. Or was the ark captured because the glory and the presence of God had already departed? Now, guess what the next couple of chapters are about in 1 Samuel. Yeah. Getting the ark back. And boy, there's a lot of lessons that God's going to teach these people about what's really going on with the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, and there was a certain man-made God in the place where the Philistines took the Ark that fell off of a mantle where it was being placed to worship and what broke? The head came off. Sounds a little bit like Eli. There are all sorts of little connections and, and weird things in this, in this literature, in this book. And God put them there for a reason. Because we need these, these connections and the contrast in order to get it. In order to help us remember. Many of you are probably wondering, and I know that because I certainly always wondered this as soon as we started this, um, how Eli could ever come to this depressing end. Well, we don't really know because we have no other information about him in his earlier life. But we do know from Scripture how the general process always happens. So let's just look at this. And this doesn't take long. In fact, it hardly... Maybe we ought to take it long sometime. How does the general process of coming to this end like Eli happen? One step at a time, one decision at a time, one compromise at a time. Paul writes in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows... That will he also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Even in the secular world, we used to understand this, although the vote would probably end in our day that nobody remembers the following little ditty anymore. It's been said that we sow a thought and reap an action. 
sow an action and reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. One step at a time, one decision at a time, one compromise at a time. And Eli would not deal with his wicked sons and remove them from the office of God's priest. And look what happened. And it isn't over yet. We have another vivid picture today of the answer that we know the Old Testament points to through its sacrificial system and will point to as we come up to a king who God raises up who has a heart for God who is a type of Christ because that's what it takes and oh did Sinclair Ferguson explain that there is only one way There is no other way but through Christ to stand before God. And we get to take a meal that just makes this so clear. We get to see, taste, The bread, which points to Christ and his body. Because he had to live the life perfectly in order for him to be able to have an acceptable sacrifice before the Father. Had to be somebody perfect to die in our place. And then we get to drink the cup which is the glorious picture of his blood being pure to cover our sin so that we don't walk out of here completely destroyed, that we remember again that his forgiveness is complete, which allows us not to go inward here and go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, we need to see our woe, but we need to focus on Christ and what he did to make us righteous before God. In other words, there's nothing more humbling, and yet there's nothing greater to celebrate at the same time than this meal together, which is why God wants us to do it. He calls us to do it. When we take this, forgiveness should be obvious and apparent, but we need to reconsider it. 
We need to understand that our being accepted by God was completely accomplished by Christ Jesus and we're placed in him and that's why we're accepted before him. We're in Christ. Everything revolves around him. Everything that needed to be done to bring us to this place, Christ accomplished. All true Christians share in that position, which is why this is a meal for believers only. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, don't take these elements. This is just for Christians, but at the same time, as as you pass them along, just consider the gospel, that there is no other way to stand before God in judgment and live in glory with him for eternity, eternity other than placing your trust and faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. There is no other way. Consider that. Nobody is going to push anybody, but we do make an appeal. And we have a representation of the gospel in the most beautiful form possible. To help us see it and understand it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We know that the disciples were... What is he talking about here? But isn't it beautiful how Jesus deals with us where we are? He gave them this ordinance. And the Spirit a little later to help them figure out exactly how all this fit. And it's something we still wonder about, right? Aren't, some, aren't we all just, we approach this meal and we go, okay, I've got to think about this. I want to think about this. I want to think about this. And our mind goes, and we get off and we go, okay, i got to think about this. And so we get to pick something up. We get to put it in our mouth. We chew it. And then we think, oh, I'm the bread of life. My life depends on this. Yeah, yeah, go with that one for a while. Wow, I'm part of him. He's part of me. And then you you just go on and on and on with these. The verses come to mind. The illustration makes more sense. And it never gets old. Not for the true believer, and this is only for the true believer. Because he has bought us with the most precious price in the world, his own blood. So it's a meal to uh, examine where we are. Do we really believe this? And it's also a meal 
to celebrate. And it's also a meal where we realize that we can't do anything else to be more accepted by God than what Christ has already accomplished. So we stop there in a sense and we and we look at him and we rejoice in what he in him that he would do this for each of us. So would our men please come forward?